You're listening to episode 114 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Nina Pantic. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's best tennis experts, pros, and coaches to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have Nina Pantic on the podcast. And she is actually the co-host of the Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour, uh, on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network with Irina Falcone. Uh, she's also a journalist as well uh, for, for Tennis Magazine and Tennis.com, and she's a managing editor of Baseline. And she does a lot of great work in the field. She's really knee-deep knee into the world of tennis, uh, traveling to various tournaments around the world, and yeah, writing and ha- helping manage what uh, articles kind of go up on on the different uh, platforms that she manages, as well as interviewing some of the top players and experts as well on the Tennis.com podcast. So it's really an honor to have her on the show. Uh, I actually met her at the U.S. Open, I think, I guess it's been a month now or so, and it was really, really cool to meet her and to chat a bit and get to know each other better thanks to the uh, Tennis Channel Podcast Network happening. Uh, it's just really nice to to have been connecting with the various other podcast hosts on the network. And uh, of course, I figured it would be fantastic to bring Nina on to talk about her journey, her career, and, and transitioning from a really, really high-level tennis player uh, and college tennis player, D1 as well, to uh, to a career that still deals with tennis, which is kind of the dream for a lot of us. And it's kind of why I Started my, uh, I guess you can call it like a side passion for now, at least in the tennis world. So, uh, again, I'm really happy to have Nina on. And without further ado, here is my interview with Nina. Hey, everyone, welcome to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have Nina Pantic here with me. Uh, she is a journalist and a podcast host as well. Uh, and we're here to talk about how she transitioned from an elite tennis player to a career in the world of tennis media. Uh, so Nina, really a pleasure to have you on. And thanks a lot for taking some time to speak with us today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, Nina. So first question, uh, based on what I found, is uh, I saw that your parents were professional volleyball players. So I was wondering what lessons or habits did you learn from them growing up? I feel like I have to go back and like scrub through all these bios of me online and like double and fact check them. But yeah, they they were um, in Serbia. So they were kind of, I guess... Mm -hmm. It's professionally, they're paid, you know, so I guess it is professional, but not as cool as like an Olympic athlete or anything. So uh, what I learned from them, 
a lot of it would have to be the discipline and just being really focused on one sport and being really committed to practicing and training and, and doing everything you need to do to achieve success at your sport because they're both pretty passionate about volleyball. Um, even though by the time they had me, they were completely done with the sports. My dad actually picked up tennis in his late 30s, which is when he had me. So that's why I played tennis and not volleyball at all. So I think I think they never really talked to me about their volleyball careers. I think it was more something that was natural for them to pass on to me was just being, you know, dedicated and disciplined and focused and, and that kind of stuff, which which paid off. That's awesome, Nina. And you mentioned about like having to focus on on tennis. So I was curious when you mentioned that, like, did you also play any other sports when you were growing up or was it all tennis? I did. I was very active as a child. I was really, really into gymnastics, which looking back is kind of embarrassing because I was probably very bad. I know I was bad. It's for fact. <laughs> And I tried to do some like marathon, not marathon running, like long distance running was kind of a thing when I was really little, soccer a little bit. Uh, but tennis was the only one that I was dedicated to at an actual like serious level. Everything else was more hobbies and parts of school programs and just things I wanted to be a part of. I was like super interested in being a part of everything. So tennis was the only thing that really stuck in terms of like commitment. Gotcha. Similar to me as well. But so, I mean, did you find that playing those other sports actually helped you in your tennis game? I think so. I think as a, as a kid, you want to be well-rounded and you want to be happy, right? So if you're only playing tennis all day from the age of seven, you're not going to be that happy. I think as if you have the options to play team sports and be parts of things like relay races and go and like win ribbons and stuff like that. I mean, it was all kind of a social social thing of having being parts of all these teams. So I think I think it helped a lot. And then just in terms of like varying up your fitness when you're older, you can mm -hmm. be like, oh, I can play soccer, I can play softball, I can go for like a long run, and it'll all kind of suit me because I've done it before. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, a lot of the best tennis players are we also consider fantastic athletes. And so I, it's really helpful to, to play other sports to become a well-rounded athlete. Um, but uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, your, your dad, when in his 30s, picked up tennis so was uh, and then transferred um, his interest to you. So what is your first memory of actually uh, swinging a tennis racket? Ooh, that's a good one. I think I started playing when I was, you know, three, four years old in Zimbabwe on these like carpeted kind of gravelly courts um, in our neighborhood. I don't really remember that, though, because I was so young, but I do remember playing in Canada. I grew up in British Columbia from the age of five or so, and that's where I remember playing on, you know, outdoor courts and um, playing with my brother and playing with my dad, and there's videos and stuff, so I think it's kind of all become a memory because I've watched it back, but... Um, probably the age of five would be the first time. And I remember playing a tournament around the age of six, seven. So pretty young and very all over the place in terms of geographical locations. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And yeah, I actually, I love Vancouver and British Columbia. And I have a bunch of relatives on my dad's side there. So I like to visit pretty often. It's a beautiful place. But um, speaking of which, I, I read that, I mean, you, you moved all over the place. It seems like, I mean, you're born in Serbia and then you moved to Zimbabwe when you were around two, if the article is correct. <laughs> and then uh, then you moved to Canada, as you mentioned, and then to Florida. So I was wondering, like, how, how difficult was it for you to move to different places uh, at such a young age? It's funny looking back, but as a kid, I remember just being really excited. Like I remember mm. moving, I don't remember the move from Zimbabwe that much, but I remember from Canada to Florida vividly and I remember being excited and I was 11 or so and I looked forward to starting school in Florida and I wasn't that hung up on like missing Canada. I don't think at that age, I think I was too young. My brother was older than me. I think maybe he cared a bit more, but I was pumped and 
then we settled in Florida for a long time. So it kind of felt really comfortable to be, you know, from Florida and establish roots there and everything. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't that hard for me. And, and looking back, maybe I struggled with like, am I Canadian? Am I American? Like, what's my nationality? Maybe a little bit with that, but not so much regretting or wanting to go back or anything. Not at all. I got you. Very cool. And so uh, at what point and also where um, in, in your junior career did you actually get like pretty serious about it to the point where you were training with the intent to, to win and uh, increase your rankings and all that? Right. I was really young. I think I started playing Orange Bowl uh, and Eddie O'Hare went to those big tournaments in South Florida at the age of 10. So I think at that point I was pretty committed, even though I don't know how committed you can be at 10, but at around that age, by 11, we moved to Florida, you know, partly because of tennis. So uh, at that point, I knew that I was, I was pursuing a certain goal and I wasn't homeschooled until 12, but that's pretty early too. So honestly, like around 11, 12 is when I, I knew that I was working towards something uh, bigger than just recreational sports. So uh, pretty young. Wow. So, so you mentioned that part of the reason of the move was uh, to Florida was for tennis. So like, I mean, were you in Canada and then you kind of just decided with your family that like Florida would be a great place in part because it would help you become a better tennis player? Yeah. Again, I mean, I was 10, 11 years old, yeah. so I don't know how much I played in the part of everything, but my parents were pretty sure that uh, British Columbia, as beautiful as it is, which it is, uh, doesn't have a lot of opportunity for tennis players, uh, given the weather, the rain, uh, the winter, the lack of people to play with. Um, as a kid, you're looking, you know, you're trying to train with anyone and there wasn't really anyone around. So Canada has turned into this big mega sports country now for tennis but at the time and even still now british columbia isn't really part of that it's more toronto and quebec and stuff so i think my parents always wanted to move to america but it's not that easy to hop on in so it took a little bit longer but i mean yeah i I think i think i think it was pretty it was pretty easy Cool. And, and so, I mean, clearly uh, from, from researching and also talking to you uh, at the Open, I mean, you, you've had such a great uh, career. And as a junior, you were pretty much wrecking everyone. So I was wondering, uh, like, what distinguished you from the other players? Like, what was it about you? I don't know if it was your, your whether it's your, something in your training or like your game that allowed you to become so successful uh, as a junior. Yeah, I was I was successful in Florida, to be very, very exact. I think I was pretty decent nationally, but Florida was really and like I think I was I think it was really young. I want to say like 14s and 16s where I was really doing well. And I think a lot of it was consistency. A lot of kids I don't don't have a lot of patience. I think I was pretty patient for for a young child. I think um, putting in the hours and not, you know, being homeschooled from 12 is pretty early. I think a lot of kids wait till maybe high school. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if there's like one thing that made a big difference. It's hard looking back because I don't think of myself as like some great tennis player by any means, especially given the field that we work in in pro tennis and everyone has so many achievements that are, I mean, 800 million times better than mine. But I, I think looking back as, as, you know, like a 14, 15 year old, I was just so, I was so fully dedicated from the age of 11, right? So I was playing more than probably any other kid was. And you know, combine that with being a consistent player and, you know, not really being a big hitter, which in the end would cost me because that didn't really translate well to 18s and college and mm-hmm. pros. So I think that was, and that it's, it's pretty common, I think, for young players to be really, really good as young juniors and then not quite make that next step because their game is more suited to beating kids and not, you know, beating grown women. So that, that, that could be part of it. 
Yeah, I actually feel the same way. I feel like uh, my peak was at the 16s in terms of like rankings and whatnot. And then, you know, as you get to the 18s, people are just like acing you everywhere and hitting huge balls and you're just trying to scramble to get everything back and all that. But um, right. yeah, so so like looking back then, uh, you know, in, in your career as a whole, actually, like, I mean, what aspects of your game or what what things would you might you want to like uh have done better at or develop better like certain like certain skills maybe that you want to develop develop anything you you'd in terms of that that you'd go back and and change yeah one of the weirdest things about me is that i had a two-handed forehand from the start Mm -hmm. until about i want to say i was 14 or even 15 i mean i was old when i changed it so in terms of you know that kind of transition Mm -hmm. So I would have probably changed the two-hander earlier, uh, looking back maybe at like 11 or 12 instead of waiting till 14, 15. Uh, but then I had my best two years after changing it. So, I mean, I guess it, it worked out in some ways. Um, and then, I don't know, I think, I think I was naturally more building my game around my backhand because of that mm-hmm. late adjustment. So my backhand was always like strong and, you know, the backhand down the line was my favorite shot mm-hmm. and it was a signature shot. But then the forehand was never really a weapon. So... If I'd made the change earlier, maybe I could have built more of a weapon around the forehand, and then it would have been at least more balanced, and that could have made a difference. Um, and then, yeah, had a bit more of a passive game style than I would have liked, I think, looking back. Like, you know, I, I was a bit more, not a counterpuncher exactly, but I wasn't really, really, really aggressive. And I think that game gets rewarded, especially on tour. Everyone is pounding winners, or most people are hitting winners, and really aggressive and, you know, swinging volleys out of the air. And I wasn't really that kind of style. So, you know, that, that, that could be another thing I would, I would change. Interesting insights there. I appreciate that. And, um, as actually, as far as like the two-hander, did you, I mean, were you inspired to have a two-handed forehand, uh, from any like players or was it just that it was like more stable for you? Oh God. Yeah. I was obsessed with Monica Seles. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, because she kind of had a similar story, right? She was Serbian or Yugoslavian and then she uh, became American um, and I was a big, big fan. I met her when I was, I think I was 11. I've got a photo with her, but I wouldn't say I based it on that. Cause I mean, when you pick up the sport at the age of three, you're not thinking about Monica Seles. So it was because of being small and young and holding the racket with two hands worked as a three-year-old. And then I just didn't change it because I think my dad maybe was like, you know what? It works for Celis. It works for Bartoli. It works for Fabrice Santoro and, and Gambill. Like, why can't it work for you? And it's going to give you an advantage because you can hit the ball earlier. You're more comfortable. You have more power and you're, you know, you're, you're a bit more aggressive naturally, right? And when you step back and have a one-handed loopy forehand, you're going to be a bit different of a player. So I think it was all strategic in a sense after starting off as just comfortable. And then it turned into, you know what, this isn't going to work for me anymore. So I uh, I kind of chose to make the change on my own, which is, you know, bold, but it, it is what it is. Yeah, for sure. And and so in terms of your coaching, I mean, it's I think it's interesting for listeners to hear about, like, what kind of works and what doesn't. So, like, I guess when you were a younger player, um, what what type of coaching did you like? Like, what type of coaching style was, was right for you? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of players that are based in Florida, they would be at an academy at Chris Everts or Balateri's or something like that. And I never was. I worked with a private, I worked with my dad until I was about 12. And then I worked with a private coach uh, who came in from Hungary named Thomas, who 
I mean, didn't have a lot of experience. So I think it was about figuring out what worked in terms of like having this kid playing with a certain uh, coach all day, every day, like what's going to work for you in terms of personality, in terms of being able to spend time together, in terms of being able to communicate well and get better. So each person is different when you're looking for a private coach like that. Also, like what can you afford, right? Because mm-hmm. like this guy was cheap because he came like fresh off the boat. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, and he was young. So it depends on like what a lot of factors are involved, but it's almost like finding your perfect tennis racket, right? Like it has to really suit you. And you have to be not afraid to say, no, I want something different. So I, I think it was unusual to have a private coach at that age, um, especially in Florida where there's so many coaches available. But it's kind of just what works. And my dad was always involved. And, you know, some some academies don't like having parents super involved, especially if, you know, this depends on, again, communication and what everybody wants. So I think it's just all very unique case by case. Yeah, for sure. And then you mentioned that you didn't go to – an academy and you had private coaching was that like um was that a decision from like more of a financial perspective or was it more that like you just maybe it didn't suit like how you wanted to live type of thing yeah I, I remember being in an academy right away when I moved to Florida that was all kind of part of the grand plan of us moving down from Canada but that academy didn't quite I didn't improve I was there for about eight months or so and I didn't improve at all I mean I was also like 11 but the the steps weren't being made because you're in a big group and it's kind of almost more like summer camp than it is, hey, we're here to turn pro, right? Like it's all a bit more kid friendly, which is fine because you are 11 years old, but it's not what we wanted. And then, um, you know, somewhere like Bella Cherries or Everett, I didn't even, I don't think we were trying to get into those kind of places. I think maybe we did a Saddlebrook trip once, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, things like cost and then, you know, just leaving your kid at Saddlebrook at the age of 12 for 10 months of the year was not an option for my parents. Um, and then just being able to be at home and then having a coach that was kind of flexible and malleable and open-minded was a big part because you're going to be working together so much. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a bit of everything. Cool. Awesome. Uh, great to hear about that. Everyone's different for sure. And um, as far as like you, you um, graduated from, I guess, uh, homeschooling or virtual schooling. Um, but in any case, like, uh, how was your experience with that? And like, if you were to do it over again, would you would you take that path? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. I remember being homeschooled and being excited about that as well. I was 12 and middle school was fine. I mean, Florida doesn't have the best schools or didn't then public schools. And, you know, I, I, I love school. I love learning and I love being in school and I was all about that. But I was totally cool, I think, with being homeschooled because... I don't know. I feel like you waste a lot less time. So I, I, I don't know if I would not do it again. I think I would maybe wait till I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, some parts I kind of do miss out on. Like I didn't have a lot of friends uh, that, weren't, that weren't tennis players. I didn't – I mean, I didn't talk to boys until I was like 18, which is fine, honestly, looking back. <laughs> I um, – I didn't go to prom, I didn't go on, you know, field trips, I didn't go to parties, but I think a lot of that is okay because you catch up, you know, by the time I got to college, everything felt normal to me, you know, after a year or two. So uh, I don't know if I would do it exactly the same way just because I was so young, but I didn't miss out on anything because when I did the SATs and I did had to, had to pass all these tests, I was doing, you know, high percentile. I wasn't remotely behind. I was the kind of person that studied really well on their own and took it took ownership of my own learning, you know, I didn't have anyone dragging me to school. So I I think it worked for me because I was so focused on that. Some kids maybe just wouldn't do any school and then they'd have, 
you know, they'd fail the SATs. I don't know, but it worked for me. So I don't think I'd change it, but maybe I'll do it a little later and maybe do a year of high school just to get to say I did because people mock me all the time for being homeschooled <laughs> now and they wouldn't if I'd gone. I don't know. It's all, it, that's all, you know, it's hard to say I'd change anything. Yeah, no, I mean, that's great to hear. And, and, you know, like you mentioning you missing all those events, but I mean, and, you know, being a top tennis player takes a lot of sacrifice. And so, I mean, that, you know, that's what you had to do and uh, it worked out really well for you. And uh, speaking of which, very interesting, uh, when I met up with you at US Open, which was, was really great to, to do, and uh, we, we chatted, like I actually, you know, I had seen that you were, uh, you, you previously had a professional ranking and then I learned while we were chatting it was actually before college i was wondering if you could talk to us how you know about how it was like actually like playing itfs and uh and achieving uh you know pretty solid rankings like even before going to college so i started playing on the itf tour at about 15 and i remember vividly being super amped up because i was like four or five out of a tournament in mexico and I was convincing my parents to take me out there, and it was uh, my first chance to get a point. I ended up qualifying. I think I won around, so I ended up getting a point. And now everything's changed a bit. But at that time, you, you really had to win points at three tournaments to get that first ranking. Mm. So the first year or so, things worked really well for me because there's all these 10Ks, and, you know, they – I was nationally ranked. I had a, I think I had a junior ranking of some sorts in ITFs. And then you get in and, you know, you have to qualify. And it worked out really well for me. And things were going up. And I think the hardest part was probably defending points. Once I won a 10K, then I have to go back. And looking back, I'm like, how is that so hard? It was six points like or like seven points. Like, how is this a big deal? <laughs> but when your ranking is that low, you lose six, seven points. You drop, you know, a couple hundred spots. And I hadn't yet experienced going backwards. So the easiest thing, the funnest part was probably like that first two years of chasing these points. Mm -hmm. And you're not playing juniors. I mean, I was still playing juniors, but like you play a junior tournament, you don't feel that level of like accomplishment and excitement. You're like, yeah, I'm playing against another 14-year-old, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then when you're playing a pro tournament, you're just so amped up. And I remember that being so fun. And yeah, I mean, the ranking, it is what it is. Like it's it's – it's hard to look back and be like, oh, that was a great ranking. But as a 17-year-old, like, that's not that bad. Yeah. And a lot of players don't have a ranking or, you know, I didn't crack the top 500, but, like, whatever. It's not something that's going to define me in any way. But, you know, sometimes I wish I was ranked higher because I feel like in this industry, if you're ranked, you know, top 100 or so, you even if, you know, even if you're ranked, like, 90, you might have more credibility in terms of being an analyst or an announcer mm. or that kind of stuff. So a part of me is, like... 500 sucks, but it just, <laughs> it just depends on your perspective. And then, yeah, defending points was really hard for me and, and, and choosing to go to college and stuff. And I, it just, it, it, the pro tour wasn't as exciting two years in as it was that first year. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting stuff there. And, um, yeah, we're going to get into it a little bit later too, um, about your career, but I guess you mentioned how, uh, it's, you know, it kind of matters like what ranking you get for credibility and all that. But then, you know, on the other hand, you do see like qu quite a few analysts that don't really have any, um, like, I guess, uh, rankings accomplishments. So, I mean, how does that like work? Is it either you, they take you for your tennis resume or they take you for your media resume or? Right. I think I'm, I'm learning right now, honestly, because I've been mm -hmm. writing for so long that I'm not used to even thinking about uh, trying to be a commentator, which uh, I mean, I haven't even attempted anything like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it sounds what I understand is 
there's always going to be a host that sets up the analyst. And the analyst is the one that has the Grand Slam championships or the top, you know, 70 or so ranking. And then the host maybe comes from a journalism broadcast background. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's definitely space for exceptions. You look at people like John Wertheim, um, who is more of an analyst than a host, and he was not a ranked player. So there's always, you know, room for everyone. I don't think there isn't. But I also just talked to Mary Carrillo, and she was pretty clear, like, you know, it's a lot easier if you have a really, really, really good playing resume. And I have something, but and you have something, so it's okay. But it is, you know, it is what it is. Just obviously helps to be more uh, regarded globally, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that makes sense for sure. I appreciate that insight as well. And so, um, you know, we talk about or we talked about how like you're you're ranked really high. I, I mean, I think, you know, if, especially for that age. Uh, and then like what made you decide to go to college instead of uh, turning pro? Because, I mean, I think like if you're at that age of like 17 and you have like rankings around like 500 and singles and doubles like that, that like is a, a sign of somebody who could definitely like break through the great height. So how did you decide to go to college versus uh, continuing your pro career? So I wasn't that happy, uh, like I've mentioned, in that second, third year trying to defend and trying to, mm-hmm. you know, the ranking goes backwards and trying to get it back forwards. And you're paying now, not out of your own pocket so much. My parents were still very supportive, but, you know, traveling to random tournaments in Texas and, uh, you know, Kentucky and Canada, like whatever. And you're on your own. You know, I had Irina Falcone, actually, my tennis.com podcast co-host. We actually shared a lot of trips together wow. as teens. But you get to 17, 18. And I think, you know, for both of us, it was like we have this option to go to college. And all these colleges wanted us. And like, the, there's a few colleges that were pretty serious about pursuing me. And you kind of think, wow, like my life would be set. I'd have a place to live income coming in in the terms of like a scholarship full ride um you'd have people to practice with you'd have tournaments to play in and a chance to you know be a top ranked college player and maybe think about turning pro after but looking back now i think things have changed i think people go to college and think of it as a stepping stone to pro but at the time it felt like it was the end of my career i definitely felt like i wouldn't go pro after i think uh, a lot of players now maybe go for a year or two and then they they may go to the pro tour after, but I didn't think of it that way. I thought like, you know what, I'm done with the pro tour. I'm going to go to college and pursue the full four years. So it was more like a a shift in my relationship with tennis than anything else. I was like, I'm not happy grinding on the tour and I don't want to do this for 10 more years. A part of me thinks maybe it's because I didn't play like junior grand slams and I didn't go and see what it's like to be like a real, real pro. I only went to 10Ks and 25Ks mm-hmm. and I played Charleston twice. So it was like pre-qualifying wildcard thing. So I got a taste of it, but I don't think I really understood like what it meant to actually make it like top, you know, 20 or 50 or whatever. So I don't know, but I, it, it, college was just too good, too good to pass up. Yeah, no, I mean, that that makes a lot of sense there. And um, can you talk a little bit about like what, schools recruited you and then how did how you ended up choosing UCLA yeah so I I still wasn't like even when I started looking for schools I wasn't like super I got to go to this school and that's the only place I want to go to I never thought of college at all in a serious capacity so I looked at Duke and Florida I think Georgia Tech but that's only because of Irina because she wanted to go there Uh, and then UCLA um and I wasn't you know, I felt like I was getting emails from from coaches and, you know, offers and stuff, but I wasn't that sure about college until pretty late. I took a year off. So a lot of people 
don't do that anymore. I don't think it's even allowed anymore. But at the time, I took a full year off from from going to school and I played on tour and then decided, okay, you know what? I'm not going to waste this opportunity. So UCLA was the one that stood out to me because it was far from home and I wanted to experience a new state, a new climate, a new atmosphere. Florida was just like too similar to what I was already doing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, I think you made a great choice. It's a, a heck of a school there. And uh, so one thing which uh, we were also briefly talking before uh, hitting the record button, you, you had a kind of a complicated situation that actually seemingly unfairly ended up uh, in an NCAA infraction for you. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what happened there and maybe any like takeaways that you had um, from that incident. It's such a weird story looking. I mean, honestly, it's so bizarre. So I when I first when I finished high school, I was looking at FIU, which sounds bizarre. But the idea was that I would still be at home and I would be enrolled in a school and I would play all these pro tournaments still at at 18. Um, And I would play for their team and everything, but I would still be, you know, eight months of that year, I'd be on on tour. So that was my first idea. And that coach suggested that I be honest and not, you know, try and and, uh, lie to the NCAA. So what happened was my infraction, which looking back is an absolute joke, Um, and I wasn't that mad about it then. Cause like I said, things were kind of a bit, things were a bit gray. I wasn't sure what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I played this pro open. It wasn't even a pro. It was an open tournament in Florida. And I played it twice. One year, I think I lost one year. I won it, I think. And then the next year I lost to Sloan Stevens, a like 14 year old Sloan Stevens. Wow. So she actually saved me some NCAA infraction time. <laughs> so, and that tournament, you got a check or cash, um, for however far you got. And I think it was like maybe a thousand dollars or something. So that was what I confessed to, uh, to the NCAA, even though I played all these pro tournaments as an amateur and I had given up not a lot of money, but definitely more than a thousand dollars because I was taking amateur pool money, not the money I actually earned. So it's an absolute joke. And, uh, it wouldn't happen now because I think you can I think you can accept up to 10 grand now. And I definitely mm-hmm. was probably just around there in career earnings, honestly. But it was an open prize money tournament. So uh, mm. high school kids, you know, maybe don't take the $1,000 check or just <laughs> don't mention it because I don't think it would have been a big deal if I had it. And then the worst part is I didn't go to FIU, waited a year and like didn't think about this. I was like, whatever. And then I went to UCLA and I had to go through the NCAA process again. And they're like, oh, you've been flagged for this. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> but then I ended up having to sit out, I think it was six matches, um, but only in the regular season. So I played my whole fall and had like a great time as a freshman at UCLA playing like every tournament I could. And then I sat out the first few matches and the schedule kind of starts slow. So it was almost like I think I missed two months or, or so. And then, you know, it's not worse than being injured. It did affect my doubles career a bit because the person I was going to play with ended up playing with somebody else, and then they were doing really, really well, and that kind of cost me a bit. But I don't know. It wasn't that big of a deal. It's just kind of stupid, Yeah, really stupid. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Back then, I guess clearly the rules were a little different. Like, could you take amateur money or amateur tournament money but not pro tournament money or something like you that? You couldn't – when you signed into the tournaments, these 10Ks and 25s, you couldn't put P. You put an A next to your name. And if you turn pro you know, on this little paper, that's how you, like, lost your eligibility. Mm. So it was all very uh, – it was all very casual. And as an amateur, they would, like, pool all the amateur money 
And then depending on how far you got, you got your certain percentage. So when I won that 10K in Texas, you're supposed to win $1,600. And I think I got home and had like 400. So it's just, it's supposed to cover your expenses, but it doesn't really, it just depends. And that was then. I don't know how it is now. I haven't played a 10K in uh, over a decade, but I think things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's very confusing, especially being that young. Um, but so being in college and playing on uh, such a great team at UCLA, um, what in your game do you think you improved the most while playing tennis in college? Definitely doubles. Cause as a junior, you don't really play that much doubles. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think about doubles. And then in college doubles was so, so, so important. And that was fun because all of a sudden, your skill set on the ad side, having a great backhand and being comfortable charging the net and serving and volleying, all of a sudden that's like so valuable. So that was the biggest improvement, which is interesting because some players kind of go pro in doubles right after college. And it makes sense because you play so much doubles and it's so much more fun than singles. And the fact that it's so valuable is just a big game changer. So doubles to me was a, a massive, massive shift at UCLA. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way, like, uh, getting to college, like I barely played any, any doubles and I was like a grinder. So I, I really didn't know <laughs> what was going on, but I learned massively, uh, about doubles while in college. And like, how did you exactly learn about doubles? Like what, like what, did you just do a lot of intensive, uh, strategy and drills and, and studying and all that? I was lucky. Be- well, lucky is kind of a strong word. I came in after they won the 20, uh, 2008 NCAA titles. So the, the team was really strong. And even though they lost a bunch of seniors, the juniors were experienced. And we had like Yajman Snack on the team who was really good at doubles. So when you play with someone who's really good, you kind of pick up on it and you see what they're doing. And so a lot of it was my teammates. And then obviously the coaches have been working in tennis for their whole lives and they've been teaching doubles their whole lives. So they knew things that maybe my coach as a junior had never thought about because he didn't care about doubles. So college coaches, all of them are so well trained in this important part of the team win. And then the players that came in from that 2008 team were all so good at doubles as well. So it was a combination of things and experience that I didn't have. Awesome. And so um, kind of building on like what you learned in college, uh, what is maybe like one piece of uh, advice or like a quote or something like that, that you remember from your college coach that uh, that has stuck with you? Oh, it's kind of a it's kind of an odd one, but I remember our assistant coach telling us that uh, this isn't the most positive thing, <laughs> telling us that uh, college were the best four years of our lives, and we're in this protected bubble, and nothing will ever be better than this, and this is the peak, and this is the greatest four years you'll ever have, <laughs> and I look back and I'm like, nah, I don't think so because I think my experience after college has been significantly better. So if anything, you can look at that and say like, hey, if I'm not if I'm not having the best of time in college, like it's okay if it's not the best four years of your life. The same as like high school. People think high school is their peak. It's not. No one needs to be so dramatic. There's a lot of life, a lot of life after college. So I remember listening to that and being like, feeling a bit of pressure, you know, like, okay, I have to make this so great and try so hard to make this so memorable. And he also said not to have any, you don't want to have any regrets. Um, so those things kind of stick in my head, but not for the most positive of reasons, but you know, it, it is what it is. <laughs> That's very interesting. I kind of like how you took a quote and actually like basically said how it's, it doesn't apply. Um, and what I feel like doing right now is just going on my Instagram and posting that 
college will not be the best four years of your life, and then putting mm-hmm. a dash, and then Nina Pantic. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I, I know someone, someone had me write a story. I think he was the ITA, and I wrote a story, kind of an essay, uh, like a player's voice, if you will, for college players. And I used that quote a lot, and that was kind of my hook. <laughs> so it, it, it came to me because of that, because I wrote that kind of recently. And it, yeah, it's, it's not the most positive of things, but in a way it is, because it means you have, mm-hmm. there's no reason to freak out and put all your pressure in, in one little part of your life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, for sure. I hated hearing that myself. I mean, like as a senior, I was like, oh, well, I guess this will be the height. But uh, definitely not the case for me either. So uh, thankfully, it didn't apply for us. Um, <laughs> I think it's relatable. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but so uh, another question about uh, college for you. Like, what were some of your, uh, high, like, I guess, what were some of your your lows or maybe one of your lowest points like during your career? And then how were you able to... Uh, rise above that? I definitely struggled my junior year. I had shin fractures, which is like so bizarre. Mm-hmm. But uh, for, I guess from playing on hard courts, I played on clay a lot as a junior. And, you know, you play on hard courts only in college, which is something I really hope they change. So I had injuries. And then the head coach um, and I, you know, we weren't sure what the right plan was for me because I wasn't super, super happy you know, being being number seven or eight after being injured on this team where I was, you know, I came in as a blue chip recruit. I came in as like number four ranked on whatever tennisrecruiting.net, if mm-hmm. that's even still used anymore. So I came in as this like hyped up junior. And then by my junior year, I wasn't really even on the team. I was playing doubles here and there, but I had these injury issues and things just were not syncing up for me at all. So I think my my hardest time was maybe which is weird looking. I mean, it's definitely weird, but I think maybe like uh, around NCAAs my junior year where everyone was getting ready to play this tournament and I wasn't even considered to be on the roster. I mean, I was, but I wasn't, you know, an option, which which sucked. Mm-hmm. And they did really well. They made the final four and I was a part of it in a way, but I wasn't really. So at that point is when I started thinking about what are my options and how do I how do I finish UCLA, but not waste a year of my eligibility. So that mm-hmm. was probably the hardest part. And then Having, I had a teammate that was older than me and she had had transferred to Georgetown and she managed to keep her eligibility and play at Georgetown as a grad student. So that put the idea in my head. And so, you know, around NCA is where I was all kind of, I wasn't depressed. I was just like, what am I doing here? Just like watching people play tennis. Like, this isn't fun. Uh, (laughs) People can be seven and eight and be a big part of the team. I was trying. It just wasn't suiting me. It's hard. So, yeah. So it it wasn't what I expected out of it. And, you know, you're getting worse because you're not really playing as much. I mean, it's just it's just it's just sad. So uh, the way I overcame it, if you will, was I talked to people in academics and, you know, we had advisors and supervisors. And I was like, hey, what if I graduated by December and transferred somewhere else in January and played somewhere else? Uh, there's a ton of rules and loopholes and requirements, uh, but everyone, even the coaches um, who will, it weren't, they weren't like excited to get rid of me, but they were open to whatever option I wanted to pursue. They were like, you have a spot on the team still, but if you want to take this ad- advantage of this opportunity and get out of here, like you're, you're open to doing that. Uh, so I did. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. And then you went to to Missouri. And uh, I mean, when did you actually decide to pursue journalism? Well, I wanted when I was a kid, I always read a lot and I always wanted to write. So I was my whole life was kind of more in the writing and English portions, not so much any kind of math. Because my brother was in pre-med and my, um, a lot of my family are doctors and stuff. When I first started at college, I thought I'd be pre-med, which is hilarious. <laughs> Drop that real quick. Uh, so I was majoring in English because it, it just felt like a natural thing for me. But, you, you know, reading a bunch of books and analyzing them doesn't really turn into a career by any means. Uh, so there was a daily – there's a magazine or newsletter called The Daily Bruin. And I didn't write for them, but I was interested in, like, what they were doing. And then – I don't know how I thought. Of, I mean, I think it was just a natural option. Like you're writing, I was writing blogs for the UCLA website about the tennis team. Like little, you know, it was insider takes. It was really goofy. But that got me into like a writing for publication kind of thing because it's different to write for an essay, different to write for someone else to read it, you know, some stranger. So I got used to that. And then I wanted to add a degree that would actually look like I could get a job. Uh, not that English majors can't get jobs, but I didn't think I could. So journalism was the most natural. Communications was an option, but it's not quite as concrete, I thought. Journalism was like literally writing things and reporting things and putting them together uh, to have something to show, right? So I, I looked at Indiana as well. Uh, I looked at Boston, um, Northwestern, and then M- Missouri was the top, you know, like five or three journalism school in the country, and they offered – a program that would have you have real bylines, like real work that was published, not just practice. So that was a big factor. Awesome. And uh, I mean, obviously, very, very curious to see how you eventually progressed to um, getting a gig with a tennis magazine and tennis channel. So could you talk about that progression from like, after grad school, and then how you landed, um, you know, your job there? Oh, that's even weirder. So <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, it, it, Missouri was amazing. Like UCLA was a good Good, good place to go, obviously, but Missouri really, really suited me because it was a lot, you know, I was, at first I was a small, small fish in a big pond, right? Or big fish in a small pond, whatever. Big fish in a small pond where I was like one of the better tennis players I've ever seen, you know, that was like, you know, that feeds your ego. And then from there, I was free because I still had a scholarship to pursue journalism fully. So I was taking part in like all these random classes. I was like in magazine design. I was working on an app. I was uh, doing newspaper sports design and editing and writing. I mean, everything, all kinds of random stuff. And one class had a requirement where you had to interview a magazine editor, but the magazine could not be in Columbia, Missouri. It was like, broaden your, broaden your horizons. And I read two magazines relig- religiously as a kid, and it was National Geographic and Tennis Magazine. <laughs> So I had Tennis Magazine around, uh, copies of it, and they had like a little email, email Jeff Williams at, you know, tennis.com. So I emailed Jeff and he got back to me and said, yeah, you know what? We have this guy, Scott, who can talk to you about, you know, magazine design, which is like, I don't even do that. So, (laughs) so Scott and I talked for like, I don't know, half an hour. So it's all recorded because it was all supposed to be transcribed and turned into an essay and then presented to the class. Um, so at the end of it, I just said, you know, are you hiring anytime soon? Like, I think that tennis magazine could be a really good fit for me. And he kept my resume around. And then like six months later, it was like, do you want to try and write some stories for us about junior and college tennis? They were like little, you know, 300 word things. 
And then kind of kept me in the loop of like what jobs might be coming out. And then they ended up launching a magazine, a second magazine called Tennis Tuesday that turned into Baseline uh, in January of 2014. So I actually met with the magazine, Tennis Magazine, in like September around the U.S. Open. I was in town just for fun. And then I moved to New York in January a little bit early than my grad degree was finished. But you can do that because it's like a thesis. So you can do it from anywhere. And yeah, so it was uh, a random ass magazine class <laughs> nice at <rhyme>. Missouri <laughs> that I had no reason, like literally no reason to be taking. I am not a designer uh, that persuaded me to contact Tennis Magazine out of the blue. And it's funny because my, my boss at the time, Scott, he actually told me, he's like, had you tried to reschedule that one time I had open, I would literally never have emailed you back. I was like, cool, cool. Good to know. Good, <laughs> Good to know. Yeah time, yeah. time is valuable. Yeah, that is so cool. And um, I mean, one thing that's really important in, in general is like taking action like on things and not being like pushing past your fears and everything. So I was actually just wondering, like when you actually thought about like contacting uh, the editor at Tennis Magazine and like seeing the, the email address, did you have any sort of fear or like doubts or anything and did yeah the, okay. the fear is that they won't respond and i won't pass the class there was no <laughs> i wasn't like looking for a job at the time i still had a year left so i was like 23 i had no i had no fear i was just worried that no one would respond and then like mm. who am i gonna get to answer these stupid questions <laughs> about why the magazine is you know using this so-and-so font not it's not stupid but yet at the time it didn't yeah. matter to me i was just trying to you know get a credit and it, that was the only concern. And then when I was chasing the job, you know, mm -hmm. the d concerns are a little bit different because you're like, okay, am I moving to New York or am I not? And then if I'm not moving to New York and I'm not going to have this job, what on earth am I going to do in six months? But I still had that six-month buffer, so I wasn't that worried. And then, yeah, the, the hardest part was probably, you know, moving to New York alone. But everyone, a lot of people do that, so it's not that big of a deal. Cool. And then so uh – this might be an obvious question, but is Tennis Magazine based in uh, New York? Yeah, yeah, okay. it is. It's based in uh, New York, and then Tennis Channel bought it officially, um, I think, two years ago. So they have a New York office and an LA office. Got it, got it. Very cool, very cool. And yeah, it was really fun to, like I mentioned, meet with you, and also I met with uh, Andy Chu from uh, from Tennis Channel as well. So uh, yeah, just great stuff, and you have a great team there. Um, what is your favorite part of... Uh, of your job right now the the most fun is that i've been doing writing and web focused stuff for so long that it's nice to have a video component you have you know not even live tv like the digital team run by andy for example they create videos for social media and for the website so it's fun to be able to think outside the box and think hey how do i capture this on video not just how do i get these quotes transcribe them and write about it so i've loved that and then having a podcast has been pretty fun because at first I really didn't want to do the podcast. I thought podcasts were dumb and I didn't want to take on so much extra work. But now it's turned into such an amazing tool because not only am I learning so much from like all these people that I get to talk to, but I also feel like it's a different format of um, knowledge being put out for everyone else to listen to. It's unedited for the large part. It's It's what people said as they said it not my interpretation. Mm -hmm. So it's it's been nice to have different formats of content that we can create. And Tennis Channel has given us the opportunity to do that because before Tennis.com was a bit limited uh, without having all this these producers and camera crews and all these creative minds that are now part of our team. So the, the fun part is kind of seeing like what's next. Like what are we going to try and 
create? What kind of long form feature videos can we do? And how else can we cover these stories that have been covered already? And that's the fun part. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of the tennis.com podcast, which as we mentioned, you host uh, with Irina, um, you've had some fantastic guests on there. Uh, I actually uh, listened to uh, your interview with Nick Boliteri to prepare for my interview with him uh, recently, uh, which was really helpful. I mean, and you've, you just had Mary Carrillo on there, um, Melanie Udine, and just a lot of really fantastic people. So, I mean, how, like, how did you actually decide to create uh the podcast it felt at first it felt like our the people that had the podcast before were just trying to push it off onto somebody but then it's not it's not true but it's not what it felt like and i was kind of fighting it and then last summer as podcasts became like way more and more in and way more cool i mean they were cool before that and they were popular before that but i just was really slow um i was thinking you know how do i take on this project and the part of chasing down guests and taking a half hour of their time is scary. So mm-hmm. how do I do this and have a backup and have someone with me that if we don't have a guest, we still have a show. So my friend Irina Falcone was a natural thought because she somebody I know really well and somebody that is flexible and has a lot of friends in the game and was willing was eager to be part of it. And that was so cool. I was worried that she wouldn't want to be. So it was so fun when she was so down. And our first few episodes were just the two of us, which is fine, I think. But it's obviously better when you have a big name. You know, we've had, mm-hmm. like you said, Melanie O'Dan. We've had Madison Keys, Allison Risk, Nick Balateri, Rod Laver, Andy Roddick. When you have these big names on your show, it kind of feels like you're a bit more legit. So it's gotten, it's gotten, it's grown so much. I mean, the first few episodes I look back and I'm like, those were not good. So it's nice to see the progress. And then now Tennis Channel Podcast Network launched Mm -hmm. and they are more involved and they help us with, you know, putting things, you know, helping with the the producing part of it um, and then the promotion part of it, which is huge because you kind of get stuck in this small audience that you, you know, tennis is a small audience and you're kind of stuck with a small group of people and you want to expand so it's the podcast has come a long way and Irina Falcone is like such a big part of it because having your friend is is so nice and being alone. I don't know how you do it alone. Like I would be <laughs> so nervous trying to figure out like what's my next show if I was just by myself. Yeah, no, I mean you all are doing a great job and like like uh like you mentioned the Tennis Channel Podcast Network is definitely a fantastic thing uh that has uh that has evolved. And uh yeah, I I was going to ask you too about um like getting guests like because i mean you know for me it's uh (laughs) you know it's it's, it can be tough i mean you just try any means you have really just like you find their email or you you send them a message on twitter you dm Mm -hmm. them like you just try your best and uh maybe you mention other guests you've had but i mean what's uh the process like for you all like trying to find guests it was tough at first especially because i'm not sure like how big of a deal tennis.com you know i i think it's a big deal tennis.com and mm-hmm. you know i don't know if everyone else feels that way so when you say tennis.com podcast do they care do they want to be on do they like have the time and are they going to even respond so a lot of it has been a, a lot of it has been people well it's a combination some people reach out to me and say oh we're doing you know this with the utr or we're doing this with um you know this autism program or like the, the things that aren't players or they reach out to me and, and talk about doing stories together. And then I'd be like, oh, what about the podcast? So it's almost like a bonus. And then with players, a lot of it is through Tennis Channel because they obviously are well connected and they mm-hmm. have people on staff that know literally everyone. But you have to time that well. You can't try and get a player. 
you know, before their quarterfinal match at the U.S. Open. So that's a, a challenge. And then Irina knows a ton of players and they all, you know, they trust her and they love her. So, you know, it's a bit of a advantage having a, a current WHA pro on staff who can send a text out to Madison Keys and ask her if we can record tomorrow in her living room. So, I mean, there's, <laughs> we're, we're definitely an advantage with that. And then, you know, having the Lake, Irina's base in Lake Nona. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of players that come through there. And so we can be like, she'll be going to practice one day and we'll try and find someone who maybe wants to talk the next morning or something. Um, but it's a combination of everything. Random DMs have happened, yes. Nice. Tracking down their email on websites and stuff has happened, yes. And, you know, you kind of hope you get a response. Sometimes we don't. And you just move on and maybe find that player or that person by chance at a tournament or something. You never know mm-hmm. when you'll connect with somebody who knows someone who knows someone and you have mutual friends or something. You know, Facebook, everything. It's kind of a free-for-all. And, you know, we're not aggressive. We're just We're just hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that approach. And that's great that you have, uh, you know, such a great team and like Irina is super helpful um, with her connections and everything. Yeah. I mean, like you said, just trying anything you can. Like I remember like, uh, you know, going to the city open taste of tennis and thinking like, all right, I'm going to just approach as many of these people as I can. And you know, How'd that I, go? Uh, it was pretty good. Actually, that's where I met uh, Mark Lucero, um, uh, who was, you know, gracious enough to come on the podcast and uh, met some other people who I'm been trying to nail down uh but uh you know it's been a little tough but yeah i mean i got you on the show and we met um so yeah it's 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 been great and i also i met nick Balateri at the open as well and then that became a podcast episode or i I guess it will be out well let's see yours is yeah yours is coming out after his but and in any case yeah it it went well and uh it's just great to try to connect with people like any way you can conferences tournaments etc Exactly. Um, There's so many events that you can, you know, you don't, you don't try and be like, hey, nice to meet you, come to my podcast, but you kind of get their contact info or, you know, yeah. mention that you have one and they'll be like, oh yeah, I've listened to it. And then you're like, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and um, uh, what is the hardest part uh, about uh, running a podcast? Well, chasing the guests is I think 90% of the challenge because mm-hmm. you're not sure what your next show will be right now because the US Open we actually got through quite a few guests and it's the first time I felt like I have the next four weeks scheduled and recorded which is bizarre but usually it's it's trying to figure out the next guest and then ugh, the hardest honestly the hardest part is audio like quality control because if I'm not in the same room as the guest mm-hmm. then I have no idea like where they're going to be what kind of connection they're going to have yeah. if they're going to be calling me from the streets of like you know I don't know <laughs> like are they in a park with a bunch of dogs and kids I don't know and that unknown freaks me out every time because I can't if it's like someone important too to be like hey sorry this isn't going to work call me back another day they might never call you back so that's the hardest part is audio quality control like Imagine if we were like in a normal studio and the guest walked into the studio. That would be a life changing experience. I can't even imagine it. So it's it's audio control and chasing guests for sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you on that. Yeah, it's definitely tough with the uh, audio quality. Like in the past, I've been kind of timid about it, and I, you know, a couple episodes like have mm-hmm. resulted in like my fans being like, "Hey, man, like <laughs> this is not good audio quality." So bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, you, I was so timid too, I'm, and I'm still am. I'm still super nice and soft yeah. about it, and I'm like, I can't let these people. I can't. It, it's a disservice to them if their podcast isn't good enough. Then how do I explain it not running? So it's, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Of being like, oh, you know, thanks for calling. You know, like <laughs> maybe, maybe a quiet room would be nice. It's like no, the quiet room is mandatory. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, now I, I'm just kind of uh, upfront about it more. I'm just like, hey, you know, by the way, uh, Skype will result in a much better audio quality. And also, like, we, we really appreciate if you could be in a, in a quiet area so they can maximize the audio mm-hmm. quality for for uh, those listening. So, yeah, I, I hear you there. Um, and uh, also, like, with Baseline, I was wondering, like, what type of articles generally do you, uh, do you publish on there? We try to do a different spin on stuff, like you said in the intro. We try, instead of it being a match report or something like really heavy facts and stats based, because that's on tennis.com, you try and do something a little different. So instead of it being like Naomi Osaka wins her first round, it's like, hey, she wore this outfit um, from, you know, this so-and-so company in collaboration. And, you know, it's, there's two versions of it. And, you know, you use a lot of social media. So a ton of it will be Instagram embeds and Twitter embeds and things you find on like um, WTA YouTube or ATP YouTube or even Tennis Channel has their own videos that are, are catered towards baseline because they're a bit more fun and off-court-y. It doesn't have to be off-court, but a lot of it is off-court style or blooper moments or fun stuff or with appearances on other TV shows, um, things like that. It's kind of meant to be a bit more... I don't know. I don't, BuzzFeed's not the right word anymore. BuzzFeed's really changed. It's more like digestible mm-hmm. and shorter and faster and more visually friendly. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, people these days with their attention spans, of, <laughs> I think they appreciate right. that format. Um, actually, going back to the podcast, I meant to ask you, uh, who have been a couple of your favorite guests on the show? And then uh, accompanying that, like, what are maybe a couple key takeaways or memorable quotes or pieces of advice that you've kind of learned from them? I always feel bad when people ask who the favorites are because if I name a favorite, then somebody else will feel scorned. But yeah. Mary Carrillo is, I mean, someone that I enjoyed the mo- talking to a lot mm-hmm. because she was so relatable to the kind of, you know, the work that we try to do. Um, and she's someone you see on TV so much. And she was so good at talking, which is, you know, shouldn't surprise anyone. Yeah. So, And she makes you feel really comfortable. Sometimes the players, you feel like you're really using up their time and you're interviewing them and you're trying to draw things out mary kind of presents things you know so it's a bit of a different vibe with her she stands out to me because of that um madison keys was a great episode because she was you know probably one of our most famous faces and highest ranked players Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was cool because irena and her were together but i wasn't so it was a bit weird for me to like skype in on the uh, on the computer so hopefully we do that again where we're all together i think that would be great Allison Risk, we were all together. So that's why that one stands out. Uh, I think when you're in the same room, it really makes such a big difference. And she's so bubbly and friendly. And we actually know her from our playing and stuff. So that was memorable. A few of them we've done that are a bit, you know, a bit not full length episodes. But I talked to Rod Laver for like 15 minutes. And that's Mm going to be... You know, a memorable moment forever, even if it wasn't a podcast. So, I mean, I can't think of them all. There's been a lot. Baltiera, you mentioned, that was an interesting one. You just never know, like, where he's going to go. So (laughs) there hasn't been – the cool thing is there hasn't been a podcast that I think, like, oh, that was terrible. Like, never. So that's that's always nice. Uh, I really enjoyed – and a lot of the people, like, um, the way that I set it up when I publish these podcasts is I lead with a quote. Mm. So their best quotes – and Melanie Udans was very interesting because she was saying, you know, not a lot of people can say they've made the U.S. Open quarterfinals. And this is just the hand that I was dealt because of the way that her career ended. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really mature of her because she was saying, you know, yeah, it's an amazing memory. And this is just the way my life, you know, it's just the way things have fallen. Mm-hmm. Just interesting. And then uh, Mary Carrillo was very adamant about saying yes 
to your opportunities and, mm. you know, not not being afraid to go for things and saying yes when when maybe something bizarre comes your way. Because I had a similar situation at the Bronx Open where they were like, do you want to be the MC and the host? And I'd never done that mm. before. And I said yes, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever done in terms of, you know, tennis coverage because I didn't really know how to do it and what to do and what was expected. Um, so that's one of those things where you kind of think like, yeah, just say yes and do it. And if you suck, like they'll find somebody else. And Mary literally said that to me a few weeks after the Bronx Open. And that was pretty funny. So, I mean, they, they've all had great quotes. Awesome. And then like very interesting uh, uh, being an MC, like I guess kind of last moment, like did you have any time to prepare? And if so, like what did you do? So the best thing about this and the best thing about the podcast is that I feel like I can connect a lot more to people in tennis, even if we're technically competitors. So mm-hmm. even though I haven't had um, Nick McCarvel or Andrew Krasny or Blair Henley on um, or Andy Taylor, these are people that are hosts and that are in tennis. And I called all four of them. Nice. Uh, a few of them I slid into some DMs, I'll admit. A few <laughs> I knew which was because of, you know, like we, they write for us or we, we've met. Um, so they weren't, they're not like close, close, super close friends, but they all responded to my <laughs> questions awesome. and even gave me some samples of things that they've used when they were announcing um, and things that they use as like bios. And honestly, like it was not hard. It was really fun. And it was the coolest thing I've done in tennis probably. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. So it was amazing to get the support from people that are in the industry who technically could be fighting for the same job that you might want one day. So it's, it's a small world. Wow, that is so cool to hear, and like uh, big ups to to everybody who you contacted, who uh, responded. I mean, that that's the thing, you know. Like when you're trying to prepare for something, you try to contact people who have who have done things like that and to learn from them, and it's it's so awesome. Um, so uh, as far as um, I mean, the U.S. Open that I mentioned a few times now that we met up there. Like, what um, what are a couple of your favorite stories from that event? Um. The U.S. Open, I really enjoyed the women's tournament more than the men's, which maybe everyone would agree with because of how insane it was to see, of course, Coco Gauff, mm-hmm. um, but then Bianca Andreescu yeah. winning the title was just crazy. I feel so dumb. I feel like I should have called that because she was she hasn't lost a match, but you just think like it's got to end somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also really enjoyed. Um, well, I think Matteo Ber- Berrettini. He was interesting just because he made history and you know he's Italian and he was playing against so many tough players that he's never played before and he there was no reason to think he'd make the semifinals so the, the men's draw was obviously obviously very interesting but they lost Roger Federer early yeah and I wanted to see Roger play Rafa like everyone on the planet wanted to see that yeah. happen it hasn't <laughs> happened in New York it's uh. insane and then Novak going down early was a bit of a loss so you know you want to see a new champion but it kind of felt like all right yeah Nadal's winning this by and then on the women's side, you have Serena making history, and that's going to be captivating no matter what. So I was far more engaged with the women's side. And yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What about you? Oh, let's see. For me, uh, hmm. uh, you know, I, I just I really love Rafa, like as far as like how much of a gentleman he is and. Uh, it was just, uh, kind of, I, I just go back to thinking about that moment where he teared up when like they, they showed the video of like all his championships and everything. But I mean, that being said, that's not much of a story. So I do agree with you that like uh, the, the women's side was way more interesting. Like the moment with, uh, with Coco and, uh, Naomi, like when they both were, uh, when I guess Naomi invited Coco to, to stay for the, 
the um, interview afterwards. Like, I, I think overall the women's was, was way more interesting. And it's funny too, because like I decided last minute to get a, uh, to buy a ticket to the Warinka Djokovic match. And then like, I was excited for it, but I should have known because he had shoulder issues and then, you know, he had to retire. And so that was kind of a bummer for me, but um, yeah, I would have to agree that the women's side was definitely more interesting. Um, but you do have Rafa, you know, one behind now and everything, but I'm really excited now for the team events that are coming up. Um, so are are you going to be like either like there or writing or following it, the uh, ATP cup and, uh, and all that? Yeah. The fall season is, is different. So I feel like once the U S open ends, a lot of things slow down in terms of travel. We don't really go anywhere. I went to labor cup last year because it was in Chicago and it was so cool. So I was you know, I'd be open to going again, but going all the way to Geneva for it is a bit of a stretch uh, if for this year in terms of like our travel budgets and everything. Yeah. So I'm waiting until 2020 to see where I can go and stuff. But uh, there's no – I have no plans to go anywhere until honestly like Delray Beach in February. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of the way things work. The ATP finals in London are feasible, but I've never gone to it yet. So it's it's just – it's a bit of a slow time. So, yeah, we cover everything from here. And we have writers that do go to certain tournaments. Uh, so there is original content coming in. And then Tennis Channel sends certain production teams to certain events between, obviously, like now and February. So there is tons of other content. It's just not yeah. me in particular going. Yeah, now I hear you. Uh, good stuff. And, uh, you know, as far as your career, I mean, it's so cool that you've managed to stick with tennis and actually combine you know, your passion of, uh, of, of writing and tennis both, uh, together. I think that's a dream for a lot of people, especially like after playing uh, competitively at a very high level or whatever level you're at. <laughs> um, so, uh, what advice do you have for anybody who is interested in, in getting into journalism or media and wants to produce content about tennis? I think the most important thing that I obviously did not do because I was at Missouri and I was looking at newspaper and magazine print uh, and websites, but mostly I didn't do any video or any broadcast stuff. I think the most important thing is to to have a complete package. So maybe you didn't play Division One tennis, that's okay. But if you are capable of writing, video editing, um, shooting, and you know managing social media accounts, plus you're able to edit, you know, as I as, as edit video, but like, you know, you're capable of doing everything. That's mm-hmm. super important. And I think the most important, even though it's not the most um, used type of content is being able to write because mm-hmm. you still have to write. Even if you're taking photos and making videos, you still have to write. If you're doing social media, if you're an Instagram influencer, you still have to write. So no matter what, like writing to me is the most important thing for you to have in your skill set and being able to write well and correctly and being able to not, you know, s- say anything wrong or you know lots of typos and stuff like that so like accurate writing is the most important thing and trying to get into tennis I mean a lot of people that I see in media rooms yeah they weren't they weren't great players but they are really passionate and really knowledgeable so doing your homework knowing who the players are knowing their stories knowing you have to memorize everything obviously no one can do that but having a sense of like what news are interesting right now what storylines people want to hear what players are hot what players are not everything about them because if you walk into a press room and you say the player's name wrong or you mess up Mm. who they've beaten or lost to like it's pretty embarrassing and it makes you look really bad in front of your uh possible future employers so it's a matter of just knowing your stuff and i think no matter what your playing career is if you know your stuff 
and you've done your homework, you can you can make it in the sports industry. Like no reason why no no one can. Awesome, Nina. Appreciate that. So, I mean, main takeaway is just really practice your writing and do your homework. Um, you know, if you want to be a writer, you have to just, I mean, write every day, you know, you can just write, you can even write articles and just publish them on Medium, even if you don't have a website. So uh, just keep, keep practicing that. Uh, yeah, and it's so funny that you mentioned about like, uh, making mistakes in the, uh, like in the press room, for example, because I, like, I just watched a video on YouTube where it was, I think it was like, the stupidest questions like that reporters have asked mm-hmm. players. And then, you know, there were a couple of them, like one was asking a uh, Burditch or I guess saying like, Oh, congratulations. And then mm-hmm. he's like, is he serious? I just yeah. lost. So yeah, that can definitely, but sometimes you have, you have off days. Like, yeah. You have totally. day. I mean, the players totally. hit unforced errors. You know, Mary Carrillo said that she sometimes hits unforced errors when she's on air. Everyone has that they're bad or even their bad 10 second blip. And then it costs them dearly. Yeah. So just, you know, it's just doing your best. And if you're more well-prepared, the easier everything will be. People are more likely to work with you if you're not making a fool of yourself. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, Nina, I just want to applaud you on, like, all the fantastic work you've uh, you've produced, like, whether that's in written form or uh, on the podcast and other mediums. And uh, I just want to ask you, um, where can we all go and check out the Tennis.com podcast? And also, where can we check out uh, your articles on Baseline? So the best place to find the podcast is tennis.com slash podcast. That's kind of where the Tennis Channel Network lives. But you can also search tennis.com podcast in whatever app that you're looking at uh, to listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple, I mean, everything. And then for our work, tennis.com. And then baseline.tennis.com is my site. And then if you're on Twitter and Instagram, if you want to follow me, it's at ninapantic one there we go. So I'll there we def- go. Yeah, I'll definitely post all the uh, links to everything that you just mentioned and anything on the show uh, on the show notes page. But uh, Nina, appreciate your time. Um, I'll leave you with this last question for you uh, that I always end the show with. So uh, what is one key piece of advice that you can give us to help us improve our tennis games? It can be about anything you want. I think the most important thing, and this is going to stem off of my experiences, is to be patient. So mm-hmm. when you're training and when you're trying to improve, because I've tried to teach people as well, and it's I'm not a good teacher, but a lot of it, people get frustrated very quickly if things don't improve right away. So tennis is a game of repetition. Thousands and thousands and thousands of shots have to be hit to get better. So having patience, I think, is really important. And having the right mindset to wait for the, the results and the improvement, because it's not going to be overnight. Yeah, I love that piece of advice. I mean, this is something that is really important. You know, a lot of people, if they don't get their result very quickly, then they just quit. But I mean, if you really have to uh, play the long game and put in the work and, you know, sometimes people who quit, they're like, you know, an inch away from actually breaking through, but but they quit and, uh, you know, that's not, not the way to do it. So just uh, stay persistent and uh, keep working towards your goal. So uh, with that, uh, Nina, I uh, really appreciate your time and uh, highly encourage everybody to check out uh, the Tennis.com podcast as well as um, all of your content on uh, Tennis.com and at Baseline. Um, really appreciate your time and it was really fun chatting with you and I hope to see you you know, at another tournament and I'll definitely be uh, checking out all your stuff. So thanks for coming on the uh, the podcast. For sure. Thanks for having me and thanks for the support. You're doing great too. Thanks a lot, Nina. Really appreciate it. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Nina. 
And if you did, I really would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you, you can do that on the podcast app of your choice. Just hit the review button. I'm sure there's one on there, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts, but also on any other platform that you use it would be really helpful and uh, help others kind of learn more about the show and give the show more visibility and rankings, which I would appreciate. And uh, that visibility would help others learn about the show much easier as well. And as always, any links that I mentioned on the show that are of significance will be on the show notes page at tennisfiles.com slash 114. And I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show. And today's quote is by Gretchen Rubin. And Gretchen said, it's easier to keep up than, than to catch up. Love that quote. All right. I hope everybody keeps working on their tennis game and, uh, you know, you've always got to focus in on one or a couple things that you need to improve on the most and to, to work on that, to, to dedicate your time to those things when you have uh, some time available. Pencil it in your calendar, pencil in that practice and have intention before practices and that'll really go a long way. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.